Welcome to Art for All, sponsored by Sketchbook School. As a thank you for joining us, I'd like to give you a free ebook and our monthly newsletter full of tips, recommendations, and other cool stuff. Just head over to sketchbookschool.com to claim your freebies and to learn more about our classes and workshops and our membership program. We believe that art is for everyone, and I hope our podcast inspires you to create and explore your own artistic journey. Thanks for listening. On with the show. Welcome to Art for All, the Sketchbook School podcast. I'm your host, Danny Gregory. I'm the author of a dozen or so books on art and creativity, and I'm a sketchbook artist. But I've also been a so-called creative professional, working for clients and committees and checks. I've struggled with my identity as a writer and an artist, and maybe you're doing the same. Perhaps this will help. At six, it was universal. We all drew and painted and sang and sculpted. We were all architects and actors, puppeteers and dancers. It was innate and natural, our creativity. I lived around the world as a child in Lahore, in London, in Pittsburgh, in Canberra. I studied at St. John's Elementary School and on a kibbutz. I could quickly fall in with any other kid, and we'd pretend to be mountain climbers or scientists. We could build forts out of sofa cushions or turn a refrigerator box into a, a theater. I wrote and illustrated books. In a school play, I played a dog that saved a family from their burning house. I had an alter ego, Roger Watford, an English lord who smoked a pipe and carried a sword. I made parrot my uh, I made pirate maps, soaked them in tea for verisimilitude. I wore my Halloween costume year round. Twenty years later, I wore ties. I drew only when doodling on the phone. I never went to galleries or museums or playgrounds or toy shops. I watched golf on TV. I was not an artist anymore. When I was 18, I wrote a college application essay on why I felt that writing rather than drawing was the more appropriate and uh, useful medium of expression for me. It came down to a simple equation. Artists starved, and writing was useful in well, all aspects of business. Princeton had a painting department. I assumed that its members were lazy, <laughs> unwilling to take on a proper major or to attend a proper art school. Architect students, they worked notoriously long hours. Fools, again. At best, I'd heard that they'd end up making thirty grand a year. By twenty-one, I'd become cynical and rigid and unimaginative. I was ready for the corporate world. I talked myself out of going to art school because I believed that the only way to make a living would be to be a commercial artist, which seemed horribly compromised. My experience working for a local paper had led me to believe that Journalists were mere observers rather than participants. My friends who were 
ending up in investment banking, they were just total sellouts. Three months after graduation, I fell into advertising. It was a job, and it got me out of my parents' house. For the next 20 years, 30 really, for the next 30 years, it was what I did. I was creative, noun rather than adjective. In Harper's, I read an essay that concluded, creative people in advertising are artists with nothing to say. It seemed apt. The advertising profession is divided into creatives and account people. Creatives are divided into art directors and copywriters. And I was the latter. And yet, I drew more and probably better than the art directors that I worked with. I had endless opinions about the visual side of the business, but I was adamant that I was a copywriter. I would not be judged as a visual person. I was not an artist. Despite all the meetings I sat through, all the product I moved, all the concessions and compromises I made, the urge to make things couldn't be completely squashed. First of all, I made ads. I worked with photographers and directors and editors and composers and made these polished little 30-second turds. We all threw ourselves most fervently into these productions, being adamant about the, the tiniest things, the shade of blue of a model's blouse, the, the placement of a comma. We would fall on our swords all the time, so intent were we to assert our creative will. This inner artist plagued me like being gay must plague those who are still in the closet. I could jam it down, insisting that it was that it was impractical, that I wasn't good enough, that it was a huge waste of time. And then that creative urge would pop its head out somewhere else. I wasn't a painter, though I did paint at home, balancing huge canvases on my dining room chairs because I wouldn't commit to having an easel. But I was not really a writer either, and I stopped writing the fiction and plays that I pumped out in school. In fact, when I was 23, I had wrote a play, and some producers started to raise money to put it on. We did a reading, and Kevin Bacon played the lead, and I did nothing to help. The production grew until the plans were to try to open it off-Broadway at the Henry Miller Theater, and then on Broadway itself. I stood by. Eventually, the plans grew so big, so ambitious, that they collapsed. And I did nothing to revive the play. I'm not even sure if I still have a copy. Three different times, I bought myself a keyboard and set up music lessons. And each time, I sabotaged myself after a week. Missing practice and, and lessons because, well, I'm so busy at work. I designed and I built the furniture for our apartment out of bird's eye maple. But then I told myself we could afford to replace it at Ikea. I got a book contractor who had a book of highly subjective, pretty funny essays about New York bars. And I wrote about 250 pages. But then... My original editor left the house, and my new editor wanted to make changes, and I refused. The book faded away. Never came out. I would come home and cook, 
hand-grinding spices, rolling out raviolis, shopping for months for the perfect knife, making elaborate dishes that I would eat by myself, standing over the sink. I worked hard on what I wore, scouring vintage stores for handmade suits and collecting exotic hand-painted ties and dressing and redressing myself to get the look just so. Someone gave me a harmonica, and I kept it in the shower, where I would play it till the pipes ran cold. I saw every movie that came out, hundreds a year, telling myself it was part of my job and tax-deductible to boot. I watched them intently, memorizing camera placements, noticing editing techniques and the names of key grips and camera assistants. I made my girlfriend elaborate handmade gifts. I wrote and illustrated books for her, even epic poems. I convinced my boss to let me have a laser printer in my office, and then I worked behind closed doors to print my books on special paper to make slipcases and to design my own typefaces. I would finesse each piece over and over, readjusting the kerning, the leading, till it was perfect. I worked for months on each item, a single edition of a single book. I was doing it for my love but I didn't deal with the fact that I was doing it because I had to. Long before we became parents, I made elaborate home movies, costuming my girlfriend and driving her to interesting locations. I drove her in a car I had bought simply because it was beautiful, a 1962 Mercury Monterey that was 18 feet long and two-tone cornflower blue and white. It was completely impractical far too big for Manhattan, and I, I rarely drove it, but I polished it, I reupholstered it, a gleaming feast for the eye. Fade out. Another decade passes. I'm married. I've gained a son and 30 pounds. My career has continued to climb. I'm at the top of my field, running the creative department of an agency. But I'm suffocating. I'm under enormous pressure to make other people produce creative ideas. Money is inextricably wound up in everything. All of our efforts are judged and harshly. I slowly came to realize that I've been leading a false life for so long that I'm not who I am pretending to be. I've been using my ability to make things purely in terms of how it will provide money there's no joy in the process. The things I make are completely at the behest of others. I'm making advertising campaigns for investment banks, for people who sell weapon systems, for chemical producers and management consultants and oil companies. I'm making more money than I ever have, and yet I feel completely bankrupt. Nothing I do is for me. I am bitter and insomniac. A few years before, I'd found one outlet that meant a lot to me. I'd begun an illustrated journal, and I'd become pretty good at drawing the little things that I encountered every day. I took a class in bookbinding, and I learned to make my own journals and sketchbooks. For a while, it was a great escape. But then I stopped doing that, too. My position as creative director meant that there was no time for such things, for the folder-all of making things that didn't contribute to the agency's bottom line or the client's success. 
I locked away my journals, and for five years, I focused exclusively on my job 12 hours a day. My wife grew distant, but I didn't notice. I had no friends outside of work, but no time for them in any case. Whatever little burblings of creativity I used to have that I channeled into cooking and fashion and making presents was 100% channeled into servicing clients. The camel's back finally broke. Through my job, I started to meet some of the top graphic designers. People like Stefan Sagmeister and Woody Pirtle and Paul Sayer. And as I talked to them, I found myself admitting how much I hated what I did, how lost I felt. I was supposed to be their client, but I treated them like they were my mentors. I was so envious of their lives, making all sorts of things for people, working on their own projects, committing themselves to social change, turning down work if they felt it was unethical, living on a fifth of what I was making and seeming well-rounded and complete and happy. Finally, one of them suggested that I get back to drawing in my sketchbook. And hesitantly, I did. I let art back in the door. And suddenly, the walls started to crack. The chains started to loosen. Within a month, I had a new book contract. And a few months later, I had a second this one to publish my illustrated journals. Before long, I had an agent, and I was no longer a creative director. Instead, I was me. Thanks for joining me today. I'll dream up something new for you again next week. Till then, I'm Danny Gregory, and this is Art for All. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. And remember, visit sketchbookschool.com and claim your free ebook and your monthly newsletter. Our community is always growing, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Art for All.